Hey, Five Sports Podcast Nation, we're back! <laughs> Carly Davison, Darren Zaslow, back with you from our two-week high school basketball state tournament hiatus. We are sorry that we missed you. We had a plethora of basketball games to cover, but we are back with a great episode of the Five Sports Podcast. Darren, tell the people a little bit about why we took this break and um, why we decided to come back now. I think the high school basketball tournament is the most uh, stressful, fun, and literally every emotion you could possibly think of time uh, for anyone in sports journalism, really, from writers to radio to television, anything you could imagine. So we've been covering all of our area teams in the state tournament, which was a lot of fun. We didn't have any winners this year, which I can't even remember the last time that that has happened in our region. But point is, it's about the kids and it's about, uh, you know, their families and their teams. So we had a great time covering them. We've been in Charleston. It's been challenging to get back and to do one of these. But we had a little break. You know, we had some time to, to think about what we wanted to do with guests. And we came back this week and we have a great uh, episode of the story. Yeah, we're very refreshed. And also we're not segueing too far away from the Charleston Coliseum. So we were there for the high school basketball tournament and we were joined by a guest that is hosting the next Bigs Hoops event in the state capitol. For this episode of the Five Sports Podcast, we are joined by the director of player personnel and PR of the basketball tournament, Jake Pavorsky. Jake, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you enter year eight of the basketball tournament. For those who don't know, it's in a $1 million winner-take-all alumni tournament. And I'm sure a lot of people in this area know because it is coming to West Virginia from July 17th through 21st at the Charleston Coliseum. Jake, you might not know this, but Darren and I were just at the Charleston Coliseum for the past two weeks for the high school basketball tournament. So, so we've seen the actual venue. We've scouted it out for you. My question is how, what, when did someone crazy convince you to bring this basketball tournament to West Virginia? It was nobody crazy. It was really the hard work from the, the best Virginia team and the fan base. So the team made their debut in TBT 2019 uh, in Richmond, Virginia uh, at VCU. And we knew it was a, obviously a quality team, you know, guys from that final four roster as well as other notable, you know, West Virginia guys from over the years. But I don't think we realized how well that fan base traveled and how passionate they were. And they really, you know, packed out that arena there uh, in Richmond, you know, over a thousand fans traveling, you know, singing, uh, drinking some liquor that they might have snuck in on their own, which I think we, we kind of love the, the passion of that as well. So we saw that and, you know, just kind of what the team was made of and what that how well they connected, you know, with that fan base and vice versa. And we said, we got to figure out a way to get down to, to West Virginia and uh, kind of doing our research and scouting out, you know, locations and talking to people. Uh, we realized that Charleston was a, a great home and we're, we're fortunate to have great partners down there and Tim Brady and the good people at the, the Charleston CVB. And we're really excited uh, to be playing there finally uh, after after last year's hiccup uh, to be in Charleston this summer. Jake, what does this state mean to you guys? And I know that the state kind of got a little taste with the West Virginia Wildcats, who I guess broke off into heard that before the you know West Virginia Marshall footprint was made in your tournament. Have you seen a state like this where you've got two bitter in-state rivals, two teams that still have a ton of talent on them? This, I would imagine the state probably means a lot to you guys just for keeping this whole thing going. 
For sure. I mean, the fan support there on both the West Virginia and the Marshall side has been really tremendous. I mean, what we try and, and market ourselves as is sort of the excitement and the intensity of March Madness, you know, with the the high level ability of guys who are playing at the professional level. It is kind of March Madness in July in a sense. And I think when you kind of have that college basketball atmosphere, uh, you know, you'll be hard pressed to find two better fan bases than the West Virginia and Marshall ones. So um, just how much that they care about those programs, the guys that have come through there in the past and how much, you know, they support them even on their own, you know, with John Flowers and the best Virginia guys doing their own kind of barnstorming tour throughout the state to raise money, you know, for the team as well as for charity over the years, you can see just how much people are willing to get behind them and support them as well as, you know, the Elmore family and those guys as well, who basically kind of run the other side of the state there, uh, you know, over in Charleston, kind of, you know, some, some legends on that side. I think it's really cool how much people care about them we're excited to be able to finally experience that this year and uh you know maybe those two teams will be you know lucky enough to to pit up against each other at some point and we can kind of see who the the best of the state is but i'm, I'm super intrigued by uh you know what we're putting on down there and i, I think we're we're really excited about potentially selling that arena out and uh, having it packed with you know over ten thousand you know west virginia fans yeah and you alluded to both the flowers and the elmores best virginia and heard that probably couldn't have had more polar opposite summers in 2020. So heard that makes the improbable run to the Sweet 16. Best Virginia's journey is stymied before it started because of COVID-19. Just that paradox of a team that everybody rooted for, the Cinderella America's team versus a team that's now just getting its second taste. How much more attractive did it make this regional knowing the storylines um, of both of those? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you have a Best Virginia team that feels like they're now flying under the radar. Uh, that has, you know, had a bit of a target on their back last year and now are, are kind of in a different, hungrier spot, you know, sort of looking to kind of reclaim themselves as the top, one of the top teams in TVT where you have, you know, heard that went through a rebrand to kind of go full Marshall. No one really knew what to expect from them. I think they were the 23 seed out of 24 seeds. And to make that run last year, to do it in the way they did playing kind of that Marshall run and gun style basketball, uh, you know, Odd Elmore has kind of become, a, I guess he always was a media darling, but in, in the TVT world has really kind of, you know, supplanted himself on top of the, the media pyramid and the, the guy you go to when you want to quote. So they've really become the team with a, with a target on their back, it feels like. And I, I think, I don't know how best Virginia feels about that, but I think they will want to, you know, reclaim their throne as the, the prime team to beat in West Virginia. So it's a really interesting dynamic there and two very talented teams. And both of those teams have made really good additions, you know, so far this off season with, Heard that bringing in James Kelly, uh, Best Virginia adding Sagaba Kanate, who was a personal favorite of mine in college basketball over the past couple of years, watching him and, and the intensity that he plays with and kind of what he brings, you know, from a rim protection standpoint. Uh, both of those teams are, are really loading up. They'll have several more roster additions to roll out, you know, kind of over the next month or so. But, um, you know, they're really showing they're kind of it's, it's a bit of an arms race down there in West Virginia and, and they're both going for it. This year, I imagine, is going to be very interesting. Carly mentioned year number eight for you guys. So, obviously, this is an established thing. You now go from 24 to 64 teams. You have the four regionals. You obviously have your final set. So, five different locations. What are the challenges going back to the field that you guys, I imagine, always wanted to have? The $1 million prize. You move away from the bubble. How has this, this transition been for you guys back to normalcy? It, it's exciting. I mean, it's, it's what we wanted last year. We were, we were happy. We were able to play games and be able to show, you know, TBT to the country, you know, during a time where people just kind of needed something to, to turn to and to, 
to watch just to you know enjoy for a couple weeks there but you know this is what we've always wanted to do to be able to play in front of fans in cities where people are passionate and they care about the the guys that are in front of them on the court and I really think for, for people who haven't experienced TBT firsthand before, there's something special when you walk in that gym, when you see those guys, you know, playing again, it really, there's a bit of a nostalgia factor involved, um, but it's guys who can still really play. And it's really high level intense basketball with Elam ending. And when we were in Wichita two years ago and for the first time, and we sold out, out, out that arena, Coke arena, um, and we had a Wichita state team there, Kansas, a Kansas state team to see those fan bases engaged like that is really special. And obviously it's why you want to return to places like that. And I think that's really what we're building in West Virginia, what we've built in Columbus, what we're looking to build in Dayton and other cities in the future as well is, you know, finding these, these cities, these hubs that uh, have these teams that people really want to see and these guys that they want to continue to support uh, for over the years. So to be able to have that ability to stretch back out to four regions, to play in some of these cities again uh, in front of these crowds is great for us. I think the fan bases will really appreciate it. And as fans kind of become, you know, people are clamoring to, to go back to events, to do things publicly again. Uh, we're happy to kind of fill that void and sort of be one of those first events that they can come out and enjoy and, uh, you know, feel that sense of normalcy again. I want to backtrack for a second to what you guys actually did in the summer of 2020 with the 24 teams all in a bubble in Ohio. You were the NBA bubble before the NBA bubble, and you kind of set the tone. The WNBA also did that. Even the NCAA tournament took a piece of your book. How, what was the feeling that all these pro leagues were the ones taking after the TBT? Like you set that path. Yeah, I, I'm sure they had a lot of smart people, you know, helping them as well on the side. So I don't want to take credit for what they did, but obviously we were happy to be able to pull it off and to sort of, you know, at least show the world that, hey, you can still play sports, you know, even with all the craziness going on kind of outside of your bubble, like the setting works, the format that we use works. And these other leagues should feel confident, you know, approaching things the same way, you know, provided they kind of had the same health and safety protocols and regulations. So obviously, you know, it was, I won't say it was a shot in the dark at the time, but, you know, we worked hard and consulted many medical experts and, and did a lot, uh, put a lot of effort in to make sure that what we did was safe and secure for everyone. But at the same time, when you're that first event coming back, you don't really know how it's going to play out, but we followed our, our health and safety protocols to a T and uh, the tournament ran, you know, fantastically. Um, everything that, you know, we could have hoped for from start to finish, you know, worked out, you know, relatively without a hitch, um, even with our replacement teams, you know, a lot of that stuff was, you know, just kind of putting in a couple safe balls just in case, you know, things were to kind of go off the rails a little bit. Uh, but everything, you know, from the, the testing standpoint, um, from the hotels and the, uh, the practice court set up and just kind of what we did to sort of mitigate risk throughout the event. Um, it all worked out extremely well. We were fortunate we were able to play again, happy we were able to kind of showcase ourselves to a larger audience that was probably sitting on the couch looking for something to, to watch. And we're hoping we, you know, probably converted a lot of people into TBT fans for life. You know, not only the bubble setting, but what everything looked like. You know, I feel like a lot of people were wondering, well, what's it going to look like with a, you know, two basketball teams playing on one floor with a bunch of um, empty seats. No one's there. You guys drape down the banners, right? You guys kind of block off some of those empty seats, at least on the normal broadcast. The lighting was really cool. You still had all the teams putting up their names whenever they advanced. So like you guys were able to kind of distract from the obvious. The good thing now is that you don't have to do that. So whenever people go to Charleston, 
Are we going to see roped off seats? Because it can range from everything, roped off seats to having every single fan in every seat. What can people expect? Yeah, I mean, if I didn't think we were going to sell out the the Charleston Civic Center, I would love to have the same setup as last year with the the draping and the big (laughs) banners and stuff like that. Uh, Our sponsor, Puma, did a really good job of helping to organize that stuff. But listen, we're we're following, you know, the health and safety regulations in each of the states, as well as our our, kind of the local ordinances and, and sort of what, um, they provide. So we're, we're following those steps in each of those spots, but um, we're hoping that we'll be able to get to a point provided that, you know, vaccination numbers continue to, to rise in the state. Feels like they're in a comfortable place with continuing to expand attendance numbers that we'll be in a position where we can play to a relatively full house. That's kind of the hope and the goal. And uh, I think we're sort of progressing in that direction. But again, we'll take all of our leads from um, the governor and the, you know, the local health and safety officials down there. So we're a little bit over two months out from the tournament. It's a 64 team tournament. How many teams are we locked in with so far? We're only locked in with seven. It's our seven featured teams across our, our four regions here. So obviously our, our two in um, in West Virginia with the best Virginia team and heard that in our Columbus regional, it's Carmen's crew, the Ohio state team and red scare, uh, the Dayton alumni team in Peoria. It's house of pain, the Illinois team and always a brave, the Bradley alumni team. And then in Wichita, it's Aftershocks, the Wichita State alumni team. Okay, so what's the battle or the fight to the finish of these teams wanting to make it into this field? Yeah, it's competitive. So we opened up our registration period uh, about a week and a half ago on May 1st, and it runs through June 15th. So now teams are in the process of kind of getting their rosters together. Uh, You know, we're publishing each of these teams on our website, thetournament.com. So, you know, fans can go on and kind of see the rosters and the teams that are competing for some of these spots here. And then it's really a promotional effort, you know, over this next month for them to show why they deserve, you know, to be in this event. You know, do they have fan support? Do they have notable players or celebrities kind of backing them and kind of pushing to see them play? Basically, the, the process of getting into TBT is because it's so cutthroat. Um, it's do people really want to see you play? Is your team worthy of being in this event? And do people want to follow you guys? So teams kind of spend this next month or so, uh, you know, really trying to prove that to us as best they can. And uh, I think this will be our, our most competitive application period ever. I mean, two years ago when we had a 64 team field, we had about 100 teams eligible for 64 spots. And I think we'll surpass that really easily this year. So it makes our lives a little bit harder in, in making a decision in terms of who to accept in, in each of these uh, these regions. But uh, we're fortunate to be able to have so many you know eligible candidates and quality teams to pick from. And I think at this point in, a, in our eighth year, it's a good problem to have. What's interesting as well is just sort of the differences each year that you guys have gone through. So you what you start in 2014, you've got 32 teams, 2015, you go up to 97, then back to 64, then up to 72, then back to 64, then down to 24. So what was sort of the decision-making process that went from going, I guess, from what, 97 to 64, correct? Yeah. So we, we've always been willing to experiment with this, this tournament, obviously in the early stages, you want to find your niche and see what's right. And um, in the early days of the event, frankly, I think we just weren't prepared to, to handle that many teams. I mean, we're a young organization. We're still trying to, to get out there. And um, at that point, when you kind of have that many teams, you have some that just kind of aren't ready for the responsibility of being in TBT. Uh, and also just from like a logistical standpoint, 64, you know, it's something in that range, even with a couple teams in a play in makes so much more sense and just kind of how the NCAA tournament has worked and just sort of the, the logic behind the bracket and setting that up has made things so easier, uh, so much easier. So 
we're, we're comfortable with where we are, but I, I think we always think about what we can do to kind of reward some of these teams that have applied year over year and what we can do to kind of make it, you know, continue to make it more inclusive and, and provide all these teams, you know, more opportunities. So I, I, again, I think we're comfortable at 64. There's always a chance for us to kind of expand back out if we feel the opportunity is right for us to do. You know, I think in 2017, we did call something, something called the Jamboree, which was a playing event. You know, maybe there'll be an opportunity to kind of do some of those in some of these different locations if, if the opportunity and the interest arises. But uh, we're excited to be able to go back out to 64, um, you know, to give, you know, 40 more teams the opportunity to be involved this year and to, you know, to hopefully find another team to, uh, to crown champion. As Darren was mentioning, it started in 2014. I know you hopped on board in 2017, but what's the origin story of TBT? Who's, who's the man behind the operation that said, we want this alumni tournament in the summer. We're bored. We don't want to watch summer league. We're going to watch the TV. We're going to start the TBT instead. Yeah. So the, our founder, John Mugar um, is, is a big basketball fan. He played D3 at Tufts and uh, I just been formulating this idea over the years for this kind of open format tournament um, for a, a ton of money. I think the original, you know, golden idea was $50 million. Like what kind of talent can you get for 50 million? I mean, if we're thinking, you know, really big picture here. So he reached out to a childhood friend, uh, our co-founder, Dan Friel, who was actually working uh, at the, at the U S attorney's office down in New Orleans and just kind of pitched in the idea and said, Hey, so what do you think of this? And I think that was back in like 2010 or 11 that they had started working on this. So after a couple of years of, of formulating the idea and kind of figuring out sort of what the, the right point was to kind of launch it and get it off the ground. Um, you know, they got comfortable in 2014 to finally go public with a 32 team event for $500,000 entirely in, in Philadelphia. Um, I got involved in 2015 as a GM of a team actually based out of Philadelphia. That was my foray into TBT. And um, I, I had heard about it from friends the year prior. I'm based in Philadelphia. I went to Temple University. So you know, I had heard good things about the event. And kind of once I experienced it for myself in 2015 and then again in 2016, you're really, it, it kind of grabs you and doesn't let you go. There, there's something intoxicating about the event. Uh, the, the level of play, obviously the money and, and the, you know, the prospects of winning that and you know, what that can do for someone is, is certainly intriguing as well. But um, there's just something so intriguing about being that in that environment, you know, something about being a part of a team or just being in the event itself that uh, I really, you know, was gravitated towards. And I think that's sort of what has made this tournament so successful and allowed us to continue into year eight is that we kind of really grab people's attention here and we don't let them go. And obviously it's not, an alumni event in a sense where this wasn't the original goal was to recreate March Madness to have 64 alumni teams. The original idea was like, you know, Joe Schmo versus, you know, like Allen Iverson, you know, you bring in the stars and you bring in the average guys and you, you put them all together and you see who comes out on top. Uh, obviously we've kind of found our niche with some alumni teams and some other causes like sideline cancer and teams like that, that have been able to, to brand themselves and for people to get behind them. But it, it's just something that's fun. It, it's intense. People really enjoy it. And the games themselves, if you're in the right atmosphere, which, you know, we we have now targeted cities where um, you have teams that have strong fan bases where people care about them. They're a blast and they're they're really fun to be a part of. So I think the people who are coming out uh, to any of our events, but particularly in Charleston, are going to have a, an extremely good time. And, you know, we we'll want to continue to follow the event and, and to come out to it for years to come. You know, I'm wondering what, what the future looks like for the TBT, because I know I believe it was what, 2019 where Megan Gustafson was supposed to be the first woman to play in it. And I guess she got hurt or she wasn't able to play in it, but they were planning on her playing for the Iowa team. 
Would you guys ever consider allowing women to join the team and have co-ed teams? Because I, I feel like the future of this, there's a lot of different directions that you guys can go in. You've built up the hype. You've built up the marketing. You've built up the broadcast side of it. Could we see a woman, a woman play on a team or a women's team or anything, you know, maybe different that you wouldn't expect? Yeah, I mean, we've first off, TBT as of right now is open to women. Like if any women want to play in TBT right now, join teams. We have women on coaching staff. But if any wanted to play on a TBT team, obviously we would love to to bring them on and have them a part of it. I definitely think, you know, women's sports is, you know, is uh, trending upwards right now. It's really heading in the right direction. And I think people are really gravitating towards it as they should. You know, there's a lot of talented athletes in the WNBA outside the WNBA. I think the women's uh, NCAA tournament set records this year. I think, you know, three and a half million viewers, four million viewers for the championship game or something like that. So people want to watch women's sports and they want to watch women's basketball. And we want to continue to be a part of something to kind of push the label and to give, athletes in general, you know, the opportunity to, to play on a high stage and to play on a competitive stage. So I, I think it's quite possible that we could expand into something like that um, and to other, you know, basketball related events too. We've, you know, from the bracket celebration, which the NCAA adopted to the Elam ending, which the all-star game adopted, you know, we are always trying to find different ways to kind of push the label and, and to kind of, you know, break into different spaces and to, you know, set the trend. And, uh, if a women's tournament is kind of that next space, I, I think it's something that, you know, we're definitely interested in. And, um, you know, we hope we can kind of be out in the forefront or continue to be a part of the push to, you know, give women's athletes and women's basketball players, uh, you know, a platform to succeed and to, you know, potentially win a lot of money. I completely forgot about the, I know about the Elam ending with the TBT, but I forgot that's like your cornerstone of the tournament, basically. Explain to people like what that is for those who don't know and what makes it so special and fitting in a setting like the TBT? The Elam ending is uh, an idea created by, his name is Nick Elam, uh, a Dayton, Ohio native, uh, professor at Ball State, Mensa member, uh, all around very smart, talented man. <laughs> and, and the concept is basically an, an alternative ending uh, to basketball games, where if anyone who watches an NBA game, and honestly college games too are pretty bad with it, the ends of games are, are slog fest between timeouts, and intentional fouls, you can take 15 to 20 minutes to play, you know, a minute and a half of regulation basketball. So the idea of the Elam ending is to really to speed up the end of these games so they don't kind of slog on here, um, to give the losing team the opportunity to try and compete in the game without having to just rely on fouling to continue to go forward and to create a game-winning shot, you know, in every single game. Um, Obviously, it's not your, your true and tried buzzer beater, but it's, it's the same exact thing, whether it's a dunk or a three or a free throw. You're getting a game-winning shot every game. So the way it works is that at the first uh, dead ball under the four-minute mark in the fourth quarter, we add eight points to the leading team score. So if the score is 65 to 62, uh, we would add eight points to the leading team score, and then you play to a target score of 73. Um, and so really what that does, again, is it, it kind of speeds up the end of these games. It allows you to get through them relatively quickly and for a team that's down you know it allows them to play tough defense and be rewarded for playing good defense as opposed to just fouling hoping a team misses a free throw and, and playing that way and if anyone has seen the Elam ending before whether you know being the all-star game which has been a good uh showing for us in the past or you know even in tbt i mean it is phenomenal theater like like just as good as any sort of buzzer beater you would see in the ncaa tournament or in an nba finals game like 
Like it is like Kawhi Leonard corner three against the Sixers, like type good, like level of entertainment. So it, it's really, really cool, especially if your team is kind of, you know, in the mix there and you're hoping for a comeback. And you saw with heard that in the bubble that we had last year with their, I think it was 17 or 18 point comeback against Floyd Mayweather's the money team uh, for them to storm back. Those kind of comebacks are not common necessarily. I think it's only 22 to like 25% of the time where the losing team ends up coming back. But if you look at the, the numbers for an NBA game where a losing team has to come back from that kind of deficit, it's, it's, it's even less likely than that. We're talking like, in, you know, very tiny decimal type numbers there. So it, it's really cool. It's great to see how accepted it's been by um, the basketball world. And I, I think it's kind of just the tip of the iceberg here. And I, I fully expect it to kind of make itself into professional leagues at some point in the next you know decade or so it's we've got a lot of people in high places kind of pushing for it and uh we're, we're hoping to you know it's here to stay you know outside of just tbt and the other thing you guys started as well at least on the scale that you guys have is the bracket celebration i i don't think that any at least i've never seen that before um since you guys started you have the whole bracket when teams win they move on they move their nameplate they the tallest guy gets on the ladder and does it and what I've been reading is you guys started this and then the NCAA does it in 2018 and then college hockey, they do it in 2018. Is that also, is that true that you guys pretty much sort of spearheaded that? And, and where did that idea even come from? Yeah. Again, it's, it's our, our founder, John Mugar is, is, you know, the brainchild behind a lot of this stuff and, and the, the origin of like with the bracket and where that came from was from the karate kid. I forget exactly what the all Valley karate championship bracket that they kind of have in the background there. Like that was sort of the um, kind of the styling and like where that came from. Um, but it, it's cool. I mean, it was a hit. Like you give guys the opportunity to celebrate in that kind of public format and to continue to see like how much closer they are to getting to that prize money. It's, it's exciting. It, you know, it, it's again, good theater, you know, a good opportunity for these guys to, uh, to share their excitement and, and to, to be a part of it. And it's just a cool, you know, little wrinkle in the event that we've been able to add and that has caught on. And, you know, it was great, you know, for guys at a, at a younger level, at a professional level, it's, it, it's really cool to just be a part of. And I think, again, it, it speaks to how much guys love playing in this thing uh, and how intense and how exciting it is. And, and the closer, you know, you get to winning the seven figures, you know, how real it feels. I want, this is the bracket from the Karate Kid. Yep. There it looks is. identical. Yeah. yeah, that's what you guys. That was our motivation. That's awesome. I never even realized that while watching the movie. That that's where it came from. Jake, we really appreciate the time. Before we let you go, we end every podcast of ours with, um, oh, Darren, you usually say it. Say it. We do a high five. High five. Sorry. <laughs> no, you you can steal my thunder, Carly. It's all good. Yeah, we do we do a high five, Jake, where we ask you just five quick rapid fire questions, just to get to know you better and for our listeners and, and our viewers to, to learn who Jake Pavorsky is. See, we got your name right this time. Yes. All right, hit me. I'm ready. Okay, I will start. Which regional will Jake be attending this summer? Oh, that's a good question. We're still figuring that out. I'll, I'll, I'll stamp and say, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to get down to Charleston for sure. Uh, I will, And then at the very least, I will be in, in Dayton, Ohio for championship weekend, but I, I will do everything in my power to get down to Charleston and be a part of that environment this year. Jake, who in your eyes was the most surprisingly talented player? Maybe someone who didn't get a whole lot of buzz in any of the tournaments that was like, wow, this guy's still got it. And no one really knows who he is. 
I think Ja'Cory Williams for heard that last year, uh, who played at Middle Tennessee and Arkansas, you know, played at TBT in the past, but had never really kind of shown out in, in the way he did and really helped elevate, you know, everything on, on top of what that team did. And how about uh, uh, Dodd Elmore? I mean, like what he did in the bubble and, and knocking down shots and like contributing to that team in a, in a very positive fashion, you know, for multiple stretches in that game. I think, I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't give him an honorable mention nod, but, but two guys from that heard that team for sure. He definitely is honor oh, first team honorable mention. <laughs> um, on that note, which NBA player, past, present, future, anything, all of them, would you want to see in the TBT? There's a lot of guys. We've we've got a little bit of a hit list that we'd like to the guys we'd like to get involved this year. Uh, I'll, I'll put out like an open call to Jamal Crawford and Isaiah Thomas uh, to. Seattle, yes. you know, Washington Jamal legends, Crawford. Guy, guys that are still playing at an incredibly high level who I think could do some serious damage in this thing. And, you know, obviously those guys don't need us to showcase themselves, but, you know, guys that have played in a high level, you know, Jimmer Fredette, Joe Johnson, Jared Sullinger, you know, all these guys have played in TBT, played really well and, you know, have, have been able to show themselves in a positive light and not to mention, it's just fun. You know, it's something cool and fun for those guys to do. So I would love for them to, to get involved, whether it's this year or years going forward. But uh, I think they'd be really, really good in the setting. And I think they'd enjoy it as well. What major division one school that has not joined the TBT do you think could and would be the most effective? You guys ask really good questions. Um, I, I think I would, I would love for a North Carolina team to get involved. Uh, I, I think that there's a, a really good player pool there of guys spanning, you know, several eras from, you know, you're talking about like the Tyler Hansborough teams to like the, the Joel Berry teams from, you know, a couple years ago. Like there's just a lot of guys. I think they have enough players where they could put together a TBT team two times over. So it's, uh, you know, it's a hope of mine that we can get. We've had great programs involved in the past. We continue to have, you know, many, you know, well-decorated programs involved in TBT now. But uh, I think that's really kind of the next step is getting a, a UNC involved and, and getting those guys the opportunity to experience tbt and that fan base as well and, and when they do i know they'll plan it forever you just gotta you gotta get them through the door eventually and i, I think we're, we're getting closer every year yeah definitely gotta hook them and then they'll be in um agreed my last question of the high five it's probably an alley-oop you're probably expecting it which team will win the 2021 tbt oh my god that's that is not an easy one uh it's it's our it's our best field ever truthfully one through 64 um I don't think we'll ever have a more loaded field and there's still teams and rosters being put together. So it'd be tough for me to, to really pick a team. Now I will say after what sideline cancer did last year, um, you know, getting to the final, they continue to get better every year. They've added some really good pieces this year. And, and Aubrey Dawkins, Johnny Dawkins, son who played it at Michigan and UCF, as well as Trey Lewis uh, from Louisville, Isaiah Austin from Baylor, who's a phenomenal story and, you know, a phenomenal talent as well. And on top of their core last year, um, they've done a really good job of just kind of, you know, figuring out who their, their lead guys are, building solid pieces around them and just running a really good program. So they're kind of on my, you know, top of my, my team to beat list. But I mean, you don't really know until you get out there, you know, there's, there could be a herd that this year that makes a run and shocks a couple teams and uh, you know, herd that could do it themselves. You know, best Virginia could do it. We'll have a lot of talent in that West Virginia region. I think sideline cancer might end up there as well. Um, you know, depending on, on where they want to play. That's obviously they're a Western PA team so I think that one makes sense from a from a logistical standpoint but uh like I said one through 64 it's hard to pick I think we'll have uh, a ton of, of high quality teams and, and probably you know 40 to 50 teams that can really realistically you know take this thing home 
Jake, we appreciate the time. We wish you guys all the best. We will be tuning in. We will be there. We are beyond excited. And without you, and I'm sure, you know, lots of people behind the scenes at the TBT to put this on, this would not be possible. So we appreciate your efforts and you taking the time to join us. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you in Charleston. We're looking yeah, forward to it. Charleston. I'll be there. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll do what I can to be there. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Five Sports Podcast with TVT Director of Player Personnel and PR, Jake Pavorsky. We thank Jake for joining us and we are really looking forward to this summer with Best Virginia and heard that at the West Virginia Regional of the TVT. We will see you guys next week.